When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. My guest for our very first episode is Pastor Al Dungan. Al is a retired ELCA pastor and a close personal friend of mine. We spoke at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting in September 2020, right in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Al was gracious enough to be my first guest and share his story. Hi, Al. <laughs> so glad you're here. I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this. Um, I'm really, uh, I've known you for a long time and uh, we've been dear friends. I think I almost feel more like family with you than than friendship, but um, we have such a deep connection. But um, thanks for being part of this. And uh, I'm excited that you said yes and you agreed to share your story. It's a big deal. Tell us about yourself and then tell us um, about what your life was like growing up and and uh, becoming a pastor. Okay, thanks for the opportunity of doing this, because I always enjoy telling my story. My name is Al, and I'm an adult child and an adult grandchild from an alcoholic family. So from the day I was born, alcoholism began to have a significant impact on my life, although at the time I was totally unaware of this and would be unaware of this for 40-plus years. Let me think about what it was like growing up. My father, birth father, was type 2 diabetic, and so he passed that gene along to me. And I had no idea that gene was there until many, many years later <clears throat> when I had my annual physical and uh, I did a blood test and my doctor informed me that I was on the verge of becoming type 2 diabetic. And since then, I've crossed the borderline for that, so I am full-fledged. But all those years, I had no idea that it was there. Well, in the same way, all those years, I had no idea how my life was being affected and continued to be affected until my middle 40s. I grew up not knowing what I didn't know. And that can be a really harmful thing. Because if you don't know what you don't know, you keep living the same stuff over and over again, not realizing that that's what's happening. I thought I had basically a pretty 
ordinary kind of upbringing. I will not use the word normal because there is nothing normal about growing up as an adult child. My father, I believe, became addicted to alcohol when I was small. And I can remember there were times when he and my mother would get into arguments. I don't remember what caused them, but sometimes he would become physically abusive. And I remember particularly one time when he was slapping my mother, I picked up a broom and started beating on him and saying to him, don't you hurt my mommy. But uh, at that point, I had no idea what that was about. Fast forward a few years, we lived in Grand Coulee, Washington, where my father was one of many laborers helping to build Grand Coulee Dam following the Great Depression. And this provided work for many men who had been in soup lines for way too long. Something happened, and I'm not sure what, but he lost his job there and went looking for work from Grand Coulee to Spokane, Washington, which is on the Washington-Idaho border. And there he found work in a plant and worked there. And so we moved from Grand Coulee to Spokane. While we lived in Grand Coulee, my mother uh, joined a little Missouri Synod Lutheran mission congregation, and it was there that I was baptized. And I remember the incident very well, because as a child of about three or four, I got up and I walked down the aisle to the baptismal font, climbed up on a little step stool and put my head over the font, and Pastor Muley, who was the mission pastor, baptized me. And so I became not only a child from an alcoholic family, but also a child of God. And I'd had no clue what either one of those things meant to me at that stage in my life. I had started kindergarten in Grand Coulee, and when we moved to Spokane, I finished up there. But again, for some reason, we moved again, and what the cause for that was, I have no idea. But we moved to the little village where my mother had grown up on the Columbia River at the junction of where the Methow River runs into the Columbia. It's a small tributary, and if you drive up the road there, you can take the North Cascade Highway across over to the west side of the mountains. But in those days, it didn't go that far. So I did, growing up from after kindergarten through the middle of sixth grade in Pateras. My grandparents lived there. My uncle and his family lived there. An aunt was there from time to time, and uh, another aunt lived in the Seattle area. It was during that time, probably about six or seven, that my parents divorced. 
And I think that was a real gift to me because my mother told me that my father used to pick me up by one arm if he didn't like something I'd done and slap me back and forth and then tell me, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Well, uh, fortunately, at that stage, he left our family. And so I pretty much, until I was 12, grew up in a single-parent family. My mother worked as a clerk at the local Great Northern Railroad Station in a spur line from Wenatchee up to the Canadian border. And it was there that she met my stepfather. And about the time I was 12, they married and we moved from Pateras to Wenatchee. Now, all the time I had lived in Pateras, I thought, again, I had a very ordinary kind of growing up life. Played in the hills, swam in the river, swam in the river, fished in the river, just had good times with my cousins. And again, it never occurred to me what it meant to be that child. My mother's father, I'm pretty sure, was what we call in the program a dry alcoholic. When he was in his early 50s, he had a pretty severe heart attack. And I think the doctor told him, Andy, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. So Andy quit drinking, but he lost his good friend, beverage alcohol, and so he was... You never knew from one day to the next whether he was going to pat you on the head or slap you on the butt. Uh, but uh, it was always an interesting situation trying to figure out what was going on with him. Well, my mother married my stepfather, Orville. I was I later was adopted along with my sister. Uh, by our stepfather and took his name and have that name to this day, which is Dungan. Uh, I lost my, my uh, birth father's name, and I'll talk about that perhaps later on and what that meant. So I finished my growing up in Wenatchee, attended the last part of sixth grade, all of junior high school, all of high school, graduated from Wenatchee High School, and had had the opportunity to be in Tacoma visiting one of my aunts who lived there, and I had heard about this Lutheran college called Pacific Lutheran. So I got on the bus near her house and rode down and walked around the campus and started to think about, this maybe is where I'd like to go to college. During confirmation, and God only knows why my pastor saw this, because I was less than a a happy confirmation class student, uh, saw some potential for me in becoming a pastor. And so he planted that seed in me. And so later on, when I attended the Boy Scout Jamboree in 1953, and one Sunday attended the Lutheran uh, 
church service there at the Jamboree. The chaplain asked us at the end of the service to all put our heads down on our knees, and if we had felt a call to ministry, we should raise our hand. And that's when I raised mine. And I'm about to cry because that was really a significant moment in my life. And when I went home, I told my parents about this. And my stepfather, who was a tremendously supportive and encouraging person, said, Alvin, I will support you in anything you do except going to work for the Great Northern Railroad because hard times are coming for the railroads. And he was very prescient in recognizing that. I said I'm the grandchild of an adult child. My mother grew up in an alcoholic family, and she did everything in the world to try and control her life and the lives of those around her as she was growing up, getting married, and raising her children. And there were times, I'm sure, for both my birth father and my stepfather when she tried to exercise control that it made their lives less than pleasant. I remember very little about my birth father, but I know that there were times when my father would cross swords with my mom, decide it wasn't a smart thing to do, and he would just shut up and sort of put his tongue back in his mouth and his hands in his pocket and sort of give the opinion, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Well, again, I did not realize I had been raised by such a controlling person until somewhat later in my life. I graduated from high school. I went to college. My first year in college was just a total joy because I was doing new things, meeting new people, uh, taking classes in courses that I really enjoyed. One area, of course, was in the area of religion, and I asked my uh, advisor, who was himself a pastor, should I major in religion here? And he says, oh, no, you'll get plenty of that at seminary. (laughs) You don't need to do any more than what you just decide you want to do. I have always in my life, as far back as I can remember, loved languages. And when I was a very little boy, I used to learn Spanish songs that my mother taught me. And when the braceros were working in the apple crops around Pateras, they would see this little boy and think it was really funny to teach them all their very favorite cuss words. But I would go home and say those words and got my mouth washed out with soap So I, because my mother was very fluent in Spanish. But I took Latin in high school, totally loved it, went to college, would have taken a a degree in classical languages, but it wasn't available at that time. So I took first and second year German, which I really enjoyed, and then in my second year of college started taking uh, Koine Greek, which is the Greek that pastors need to learn if they're going to read the Greek Bible. 
the beginning of my sophomore year, I was on the stage in the chapel building setting up the microphones for uh, freshman orientation because I was part of a scout organization called Alpha Phi Omega that did service projects at the college. And as I was setting up this microphone, I happened to look up, and three girls walked in. And one of them was my wife. And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, my, I have got to get to know you better. It almost didn't happen because her last name was maiden name was Hansen, spelled S-E-N. And uh, all the S-E-N people I knew were Danes. So I, I got in the group that she was a part of for orientation, and I said, oh, it's nice to meet a nice Danish girl. And she kind of puffed up and said, I'm sorry, but I'm Norwegian. My dad was from Norway. It almost stopped a good relationship before it ever got started. But, you know, time went along, and we've been married now 62-plus years and counting. And I can say that they have been really special years all that time. They have not been easy years because the first 25 or so, I was this unrecovering adult child, and I had no idea how controlling I had been. I had no idea at how I had been very well-schooled in theology from Sunday school on through seminary and even graduate work in theology, and I knew a lot about theology, but I knew nothing about spirituality. So 45 years, you've got this thing going on. You didn't even know. You didn't even have a name for it. You didn't know it was no there. No clue. No. Was clue. there any sense that you, that there was um, anything wrong in your life? Did you feel like there was some issue with you that was unresolved, or did you feel like yeah. something that wasn't normal? Or one thing that really comes to mind when you ask that. The last parish I served in Houston, Texas, there was a couple, older couple, and he was experiencing terminal cancer. And he was in and out of the hospital, in and out of his home, and I would visit them in the hospital. I would bring communion. I would read scripture. I would pray with them. I did all the pastorly things. But one day when I was leaving their house, the wife said to me something that just put a knife in my heart. She said to me, Pastor, don't you understand what we're going through? And I didn't have a clue because I had a great head for them, but I had no heart for them. And I didn't know I had no heart. And that's where the spirituality aspect came into play finally in my life. One day, I was sitting in my office at Zion Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, 
and a young woman walked in with her three children. Her name was Brenda. And I really, even though I'd had touches here and there with the whole whole issue of alcoholism and how pastors are supposed to address this, Brenda was the first person who really helped me to realize there was more to it than just knowing some stuff. She sat down with her three little kids and started to cry. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't know how to handle crying people too well. She finished crying, and she said to me, Pastor, I don't know what to do. My husband is drinking, and he started convulsing in his drinking. Now, I didn't know much about the progressive disease of alcoholism, but I had some idea that this was not good. And so I did the best I could with her with what I had at the time. And I said to her, well, Brenda, I've heard of a program when I lived up in Minnesota called Intervention that was started by the Johnson Institute. And I don't know if in this city, fourth largest city or so in the country at that time, if there is some place where we can connect with that. But let's start here. Let's try connecting with AA. Because if anybody would know about that, they would. So I called AA and immediately got slapped right down. Because at that point, AA firmly believed that the individual had to bottom out on his or her own. And intervention raised the bottom, and they thought it was artificial, and so it wouldn't work. Well, I decided that's not the place to go. (laughs) So I started snooping around here and there, and fortunately came up with this little outpatient program that had done their training here in Minnesota with the Johnson Institute and were bringing it back to Houston to see if they could start to do something to help people not have to go so far into their disease that it probably would end up killing them. And as I found out, convulsing was really way down the loop there. Not good at all. So I said to Brenda, I think I've found a place. So let's go over and talk with these people and see what they have to offer. So I went there, and I met Jesse, and I met Nancy. Jesse was a recovering alcoholic who swears he was alcoholic from his first drink because it made him feel so good, like he'd never felt before. And Nancy was just a long-suffering codependent alongside of this guy. So they talked with Brenda and decided, you sound like a good candidate. So they set up a series of 
educational sessions for her. So I thanked them, went back to my office and thought, okay, dusting off my hands, I've taken care of Brenda. Well, it didn't stop there, because <laughs> Brenda called me and said, Pastor, I don't have anyone to go with me to this, and they say I need to have some other people. So I said, okay. So I went, and for the first time, I heard what the intervention process was about and how the codependent person could begin to learn certain behaviors and attitudes that would keep them from driving the, the addict further into his or her addiction. So she was learning this stuff, and I was sitting there listening. And I thought, well, this sounds kind of interesting. Not too much later, Jesse and Nancy offered a class for clergy in the Houston area around the intervention thing. And since I'd been exposed to it, I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I went and I sat in and got more information than what I'd had before. But at that point, it was still all head stuff. Well, when I had been called to this congregation in Houston, their neighborhood was changing, and they called me to help integrate the congregation because there was quite a large uh, Hispanic community, black community, Southeast Asian community that were moving in, and the Anglo community was having more and more move-outs. And so they didn't want to lose their church. So I was there for about a year trying to figure out what's going on. All this time, non-recovery, you got to remember. So in my own way, I was just as sick as my congregation. <laughs> and they decided after about a little less than two years that they really didn't want to integrate. And so they fired me. And this was a real blow to me because I didn't think Lutheran ministers ever got fired. But they did. I did. And so here I was here with two kids in college, buying a home, two kids in high school coming up to college, my wife in a brand new job in sales with what was then Lutheran Brotherhood and now Thrivent. And so she was just starting to develop her clientele. And so here we were. Well, the church had said, we'll give you six months severance pay. And so I said, fine. And I, and I started looking around for where can I go to work. And I bought this book about what to do when you've lost your job. And the only thing I remember about that book is it said, when you are looking for work, Take a notebook-sized sheet of paper, number from 1 to 25, and start going no, 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 all the way down to 25, which will be a yes. And somewhere along there, you're going to be able to get that yes, and you'll have a job. Well, I had done 
education. I had done marketing in other work that I have done before. And so I started thinking, well, now who might be interested in that? And I heard that Jesse and Nancy were looking for someone to market their program. So I went and said to them, what do you think about me going to work for you and learn and marketing your program in the Houston area? I only went to one. I didn't even get to one no. I got a yes right away. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. I didn't even get to one no. I got a yes right away, and I so I went to work for them. This was the intervention program? This was the intervention program. And in order to market and educate people about this, I had to sit in on all the intervention programs that they were doing with families who had an active alcoholic. And the more I listened, the more I thought, Oh, my God, that's my family. What, what has been going on all my life that I didn't even know this? And so I gradually became more and more aware of what this meant for me and made the decision that I would start taking classes at the University of Houston where they offered courses so that you could become a certified addiction counselor. So I started taking classes there. Well, again, it was all head stuff for me, although my heart was starting to get touched. And then one night, one of the women who did part-time counseling at Fairlight, which was the 
program I was involved with gave a talk on adult children of alcoholics. And she had a list of about 35 behaviors and characteristics of these people. And she started talking. And I started crying. She lectured for an hour and a half. I cried for an hour and a half. I have never wept. I had never wept that much in my life because I was taught from very small on big boys don't cry. And so I had stuffed years of tears in my life. And that was the breakthrough that helped me to know that I really needed help. Up to that point, well, you know, maybe. But when she read that list, I thought, oh, Jesus wept. This This is me on every one of those. So after the class was over, I went up to her and I said, Mary, I think I need some help. Could I come to you for counseling? And so I began my first initial steps in what it meant to be an aware adult child from an alcoholic. And like most people I know at this stage in recovery, I had real difficulty in following through on the assignments that she gave me. I met with her every other week. And so I was supposed to work on these assignments so it would be ready for when I came in. Well, being the kind of person who puts off until the last minute, which is one of the characteristics of an adult child, I would drive over near her house, park under a shady tree, and write like mad to get ready for her, my counseling session. Well, after I'd had about maybe six, eight, at most ten sessions, my wife was being transferred to a general agency for Lutheran Brotherhood. And so she was given the option of three agencies to look at. The first one was Allentown, Pennsylvania. I don't remember what the other two were, because when we got to Allentown, it looked like this was the right place for her. So we made a move, and Mary said to me when I left, You've made good progress. Whatever you do, get connected with an adult children of alcoholics Al-Anon group when you get to Allentown. So we moved. We got in there. My wife started working in what was called a scratch agency. She had three agents. She was the only woman in the company at that time, and they thought, We'll give her a poor agency, and if she fails, we'll say, well, we tried. You know, we gave a woman a chance. Well, they didn't know my wife (laughs) 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 because she really put her nose to the grindstone and her shoulder to the wheel, and I apologize for those terms, but she really went to work. And for the first three years— of her working there, we lived on borrowed money. Lutheran Brotherhood 
loaned us money so she would have a chance to get this up and running. And if she hadn't made it, we'd have had to pay all that back. So she had great incentive for making it. At the same time, I was looking for work, and the Lutheran Church there in eastern Pennsylvania was absolutely a dead end. They did not believe they had any problems with addiction among their pastors, wrong, in their congregations, also wrong, and so they wouldn't give me the time of day. But I was able to find work as a counselor with a uh, an interdenominational counseling group in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was the next city east from us. I did not know at the time, however, that the guy who was running that program was an alcoholic who was on his way down <laughs> the list. And ultimately, the place went belly up, and uh, so we were kind of cast adrift. But it was just the right place and the right time for me to come with this adult child's program. And I had talked to my pastor about starting a group for adult children in our church. He said, if the church council is okay with it, fine with me. They were okay with it. So I made an announcement one Sunday morning, and I ended up with two people from our congregation, myself, and a lesbian woman who had heard about this program somehow through Al-Anon. So the four of us started this. Well, getting back to my counseling service, there was nobody doing this. And before six months had gone by, I had more work than I could handle. In fact, it was overwhelming me. And I realized at that point, if I didn't start cutting back on my counseling hours, in three years' time, I would be burned out. It took some doing to convince myself of this, but I started backing off until I was doing, well, 30-plus hours. I cut back to 20, which was a much more reasonable thing, and I was able to continue in that counseling program for 18 years. And very few counselors last that long. But I learned you work for four months, you take three weeks off, and don't do anything that's connected with your work. You take another and work another four months, and then you take three weeks off. And that spelled me so I was able to recharge uh, my batteries. At the same time, our adult children's group started out small, but it, the word started to get out to Al-Anon that we had this group, and so we were getting a trickle and a trickle, and a surge, and almost a faucet turned on full force, got people in there. Within two years' time, we went went from four people to over a 100 people coming every Sunday night. The local Al-Anon groups, however, were not real happy with us because we were using non-Al-Anon-approved material. Because at that time, Al-Anon was doing nothing regarding adult children stuff. 
And so we were reading books uh, by counselors who had come to the realization that this is really an overlooked group and we need to start identifying this. And so just a flood of good books came out and we were using all of these. Well, twice a year, the head of the Al-Anon group in our Lehigh Valley area would come to visit us and we would get from her as you know, the well-known Elon handshake. She would shake her finger at us finger. verbally and say, you're not doing Al-Anon approved stuff. And we would say to her, well, when Al-Anon starts coming out with stuff that compares to what we're using, we'll be more than happy to do it until that time happens. You're just going to have to bite your tongue and let us be there. And we continued to grow. It was just kind of amazing. Every Sunday night, we would meet at our church at 7 o'clock. Every month, we would have a speaker meeting, a step meeting, a uh, story that somebody would tell about their, their life, and then there was one other that I don't remember anymore. And then after the me after those four topics were addressed in the large group, then we'd break up into small groups, and the topic for the evening would be picked by whoever was chairing the meeting that evening. And then the small groups would talk about those. Not too long after we got going, we realized that the newer people were really not able to deal with some of the stuff that those of us who had been in there for a while could do. So we started having beginners meetings and started feeding them milk and pablum instead of beefsteak. And this really helped a lot. One night, we were sending the list around for who was going to tell their story in the coming months. And to this day, I would swear on any stack of Bibles you would give me that the woman who sat next to me said to me, Al, don't you think it's time you tell your story? Because I never had. Well, she swears on that same stack of Bibles that she had never said that. I don't know where the words came from, but I wrote my name down for the next month. And I sweat bullets and blood until the night came when I sat in front of that group and started to tell my story. And I thought to myself, what are these people going to think of me? What are they going to think of me? When I was done, I got standing applause. I could not believe what I was seeing. And again, even after all those years, it still tears me up because I could not believe that they would sit there and listen to all of my stuff. And some of it was not pretty stuff and still give me a standing applause when I was done. 
It still just blows my mind to this day. And that's the reason that for me the steps are so important, especially step 10, which says we continue to take personal inventory of ourselves and when we are wrong, promptly admitted it. Well, Promptly, for me, sometimes means right away. Sometimes it means a week, two months, maybe even a year. But it keeps grating at me until I say to myself, I've got to acknowledge this to myself and to someone else. And step 12 also is very important to me because I think it's so important that those of us who have been blessed by this very spiritual program are able to share our stories with others. It turned my life inside out, upside down, and backwards. In our devotions today from Luther Seminary, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, talks about how what it was like for him before his Damascus Road experience and how he had been such a committed, committed man to his understanding of what Judaism was. But like for Paul and for me, it was all head stuff. And when he had the Damascus Road experience— when I had my Mary experience that took it from being in our heads to being in our hearts. I learned a lot about theology over my life and still continues continues to do so. But it was in the 12-step program that I learned about what it meant to be spiritual. The theology by itself, is good. But I do not believe it's enough. Spirituality by itself is good, but I don't think it's enough. I think you need to blend the two, marry the two, so that one can inform the other. And in my life, that's the kind of thing that I keep working at doing. That's what it's like for me. What's it like? What's different? What's different in my relationships? Everything. Absolutely everything. Nothing is the same today as when before I came into recovery. A friend of mine in AA told me one time, you know, Al, AA is a long-term kind of program. You don't get recovered. You stay recovering. And so I've learned that it takes five years to get your brain back, another five years to learn how to use it. And I think that's just as true of codependence as it is for chemically dependent or other addicted people, because the addiction screws their brain around so bad that they can't think straight. They can't think right. Somebody said to me one, asked me a question one time, how do you know when an alcoholic is lying? And I said, when? 
And he said, when his lips are moving, because it's not possible for an alcoholic or an addict or a codependent to tell the truth, because it's the nature of the addiction and the codependency to cause us to lie. We have to protect ourselves. And so, thank you so much for telling at least a part of my story. Could you say something about, I, I thought it was pretty funny when you were talking about the Aladons telling, uh, telling your group what to do. Isn't that typical of Aladons? They like to control things, right? But, they, uh, but when you said that, I thought, okay, but you guys were doing work very similar to Aladons, um, but you were using different materials. How would you distinguish between those two groups? Uh, what, how is an adult child different from an Al-Anon? I know there's a lot of similarities, but what's, what would be missing for, for the adult children well, in the, an Al-Anon? The basis there was the 12 steps of Al-Anon. That's where we started. The 12 steps, the 12 promises, all the other 12s that are there, that was the basis for founding our program. We really didn't learn much about these non-approved Al-Anon books until we had been together for a while, and then they started popping up like popcorn. And so we started reading them, and we started saying, these writers are right on. They've been counseling with people like this for years, and now they're coming to the awareness that these are children who have come out of alcoholic families, and they need what Al-Anon has to bring. But they need also what we have discovered in our counseling processes, like those 25 or 35 uh, items of what it's like Symptoms. to be an adult child. That's fascinating. Um, so uh, then you also talked about um, the um, – I, I don't know if you really talked about this, but you made me wonder about other clergy. Uh, do you think um, – uh, do you see this as an issue among clergy? Don't get me started on that, Ed. I know. There's not enough time in the I, world. I already know your answer, but I, I want you to, to, the, to... The thing that I've discovered as a recovering clergy person and a recovering person is that people like us tend to go into helping professions. And so doctors, lawyers, EMTs, police, fire, nurses, you name it. You can make a, a list as long as your arm. People who go into helping professions very often come, not always, but very often come from highly dysfunctional slash codependent homes. And that has an ongoing impact in their, in their lives, and it is so destructive without our even knowing it's being that. We want to help. And so we believe we can get help for ourselves by helping others. That's one thing I left out. One of the, the best things I learned from Al-Anon and from Scripture is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I spent a lot of time loving my neighbor, and I was trying to get water out of an empty well. Allah, the woman who said to me, Pastor, don't you know what's happening to us? When I learned to love Al, that's when I started to learn how to love others. Because there's always water in that well now. The problem is, too often, even yet, I don't dip my cup in that well. And a situation will come up where I could very easily have been a sensitive person and I miss the opportunity. And I kick myself for days after that because I really wasn't listening to what the other person had to say. I've got so much more to do when it comes to listening. And I hope, I'm 83 and counting, I hope God will give me enough years that I will learn how to really, really, really listen. What's the church need to learn? (laughs) What does the church need to learn? That it's a codependent agency as well. I read a really good book here years ago called The Codependent Church. And another one about codependency in businesses by Ann Wilson Schaefe. And she really takes the church to task for not being more sensitive. And she's right on target. Yeah. She co-wrote that with Diane Fassel. Right. Well, and that's the whole mission behind the Center of Addiction and Faith is to help faith communities learn yeah. a lot more than what they yeah, what exactly. they exactly. And to help grow that ministry. Well, Al, thank you so much for your time here today. You're a dear friend and a, and a, a man of faith, and I have always appreciated you in my life. Thanks for sharing your story with us here today. God okay. bless you. And I'll, I'll give you a quick Swedish lesson. Varsha go. Scandinavians don't have a particular word for you're welcome, okay? Velkommen means come in to my house or my business. But Varshago is kind of a catch-all for saying, okay, I hear what you say. So Varshago. Varshago. There will be a test. (laughs) Okay. Good to know. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, That phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views 
opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.